Good morning. I'm in a good mood today. So, I woke up this morning and uh, I, I looked out my window and the tree it had snow like this on every branch. The sun was hitting it. It's like God just gave me this beautiful present this morning, and I haven't stopped smiling. Here we go. Uh, Luke 9, verses 51 through 62. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead who went into, some, into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Would you bow your heads with me? Dear Lord, we come before you this morning, and we pray that you would open up our hearts and our minds to, to you, Lord, that we might be both challenged and encouraged, Lord, that we might grasp the gravity of what it means to surrender ourselves to you, to be called to be followers of you, but that as the weight of that presses upon us, we might strangely discover that it brings forth a sense of great freedom and joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Take only what you need to survive. That is a phrase that is often said in the Hanley family, particularly between my brother and I, because my brother and I love to quote movies back and forth. It's sort of a, uh, we have a number of, of movies that are sort of our go-to. Joe versus the Volcano, My Cousin Vinny, My Blue Heaven are three of the ones which we routinely go to. We have certain phrases that if it ever seems appropriate in the conversation to throw it in there, even if it doesn't really fit, we'll find a way to sort of throw it in there. And, and this is one of those lines, take only what you need uh, to survive. And it comes from the movie Spaceballs. And it comes from this scene, it's like in the 80s, early 90s, I can't remember when this movie came out. And there's basically, well, the context in which this line, take only what you need to survive, comes is that the space mercenary Lone Star, he has been hired to go rescue a princess, Princess Vespa, go to rescue her, bad people or have captured her, I can't remember all of the details, and... Lone Star, he is in debt. He's very much in debt, a large debt to a man by the name of Pizza the Hut. And so he has got to find some way to, to pay back this debt. So he agrees to 
to try this, this rescue attempt to rescue Princess Vespa. And he succeeds. He gets her. He has her in his spaceship. And as they're, as they're leaving, as they're on their way away from the bad guys, uh, they run out of gas. His spaceship runs out of gas. He forgot to, I guess, forgot to fill it up. I don't remember exactly how that transpired. But he runs out of gas, and they have to crash land on a desert moon. And so they crash land on this desert moon, and, and Lone Star sort of takes stock of the situation, and he realizes that they're going to now, they're in the desert, they're going to have to walk a significant distance to find any sort of help. And so as he's getting everybody ready to leave and telling them to prepare to leave, this is what he says to them. He says, take only what you need to survive. And then it jumps ahead, they, they, they jump right ahead, and you see them walking through the desert, and pr- the princess is, of course, she's kind of walking ahead. She's got an umbrella over her, keeping the sun off of her. And trailing behind, we see Lone Star and his sidekick, and they're carrying this massive suitcase that is Princess Vespa's, the stuff that she requested come on this little journey. And they're carrying it, and they're just exhausted. I mean, they've gone over, over dune after dune of sand, and finally Lone Star can't take it anymore, and he puts it down on the ground. He says, what is in here? And he opens it up and he pulls out, there, there is this hair dryer that is, it's like three feet long and it's about a foot wide. And, and he just look, gives her this look and then she looks right back at him, you know, with all of her royal highness attitude. And she says, it's my industrial strength hair dryer and I can't live without it. Maricela understands. <laughs> Today we're continuing in our series called Surrender. It's a series in which we are going through really the second half of the book of Luke. And what we discover in that section of scripture is that there is this invitation for us to walk with Jesus. That, and actually it's in this passage, <laughs> this passage that we're looking at today is really the pivot point for the Gospel of Luke. The, as you notice, the, let's see if I'm on the right page here, the first verse that Lorraine read, verse 51, says, As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And so that's a, a pivotal verse because Luke, the writer, is trying to set the stage. He wants us now to read everything that comes after this in the Gospel. He wants us to read this in light of the fact that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to be crucified. In fact, it's at this point when he starts hinting that he might be killed. Earlier on, he doesn't really talk about it that much, but he starts to hint at it more. And so now it's clear that in the mindset of Christ that all of the things that we're, we're going to see him do in the subsequent chapters are all to be seen in light of his journey towards the cross. It's this journey in which he is increasingly surrendering more and more of himself to the will of the Father. And he's inviting us, Luke wants us to see this as an invitation for us to do the same thing. That in the way that Jesus surrendered himself and walked to Jerusalem, that we're invited to do the same thing. And that's really what this whole series is about. It's it's an invitation for us to journey with Jesus to the cross. This is a series that we're doing during the season of Lent. We, are, we have set this up so that we're going to journey and we'll get to the crucifixion at Easter. And the idea is that during this season of Lent is this season 
where we surrender more and more of our lives to the Lord. We have set up in the, uh, in the well, I don't know what we call that room now, the coffee room. In fact, I was thinking about this. Trustees, here's an assignment for the trustees, is to name these rooms. We want, I want name, what do we actually call these rooms? Like, this is the narthex, I've heard it called. I don't know what that means. There's narthex, there's lobby, there's all kinds of, so if we could get, let's figure out what we're going to call these rooms. That would be, you guys get to choose. You can figure out what we're going to call. Anyway, that room back there, you'll see that we have this tree. The tree was in the lobby slash narthex slash whatever. It was there, but we had to move it because of the, the water damage and whatnot. And I actually like it here. It's more prominent. You can see it there. You know, what is this tree all about? And we're calling it the confession tree or the tree of surrender. And the idea behind it is that it's to remind us of this season of surrendering to Christ that what you can do is there are little, little tags that we're sort of seeing almost like leaves, and you can write on those tags what you're surrendering to God. So you're saying, during this season, Lord, I want to surrender. Perhaps, God, I need to surrender my marriage more to you. My marriage, I have not really been submitting it to you. I need to surrender this relationship to you. God, I need to surrender, surrender my financial spending, my habits with my finances. I surrender that to you, right? Maybe for some of you who have chosen to give up something for this season, maybe you can put that there. I, I surrender television. I surrender food. I surrender alcohol. I surrender whatever it is that you might decide to surrender to God in this period. We invite you to do that. And it's there just to remind us that this is this season of, of surrender. And, and so what, what I want us to, to see here is actually by the tree, when you walk out, you'll notice this verse. And I had, I had Ben read it during the worship as well. It's a verse from last week. And it's sort of the theme verse. And that is, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. And that's the whole idea. And I think that's important to remember. I need to drive this home here. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What's important to understand is that this whole series is about finding life. This whole series is about finding life, that we, we want you, I want you to experience life. That's, where, that's what we're after. The idea is that we have our eyes on Easter we have our eyes on Easter and the resurrection of Jesus, and that, that reminds us that surrendering to him, though difficult it may be, it ultimately leads to life. That that's the pattern of the cross. That's the pattern of the Christian life. And it's important for us to remember that that's what we're at. We want you to experience life. That, that's, that's my, we, we want you to be all that you can be. If I can steal a line from the army, if that's okay, right, the army... Be all that you can be. And, and, you know, I have a lot of respect for the army. I think the army can really help you to become a a better person. But ultimately, it is Jesus who can help you to become all that you were meant to be. And that's really the hope here. The hope here is that we are after life. it's It's not just me that wants you and me to have life. It's Jesus himself who wants you to experience life. Let me just read to you from John chapter 10. Here in in John chapter 10, Jesus uses the analogy of sheep. He compares all of us to sheep, which I think makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, because we're all pretty fragile and dumb, right? So that's kind of the idea here, is that he's comparing us to sheep because we're all kind of weak, fragile, and dumb. So I think that makes sense. 
He's comparing us to sheep, and then this is what he says. He says, he's talking about sheep in a sheep pen, and he says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and may have it to the full. And of course, the King James, this is the one spot where the King James gets better. I have come that they might have life and might have it more abundantly. It's this idea that Jesus is saying, look, I have come that you might have the fullness of life. And the the word that is used here, which is translated full in this passage and abundantly in other versions, it really is a word that is referring to overflowing. He's saying, I've called that you might have life that overflows. Like you have more life than you know what to do with. And, And it's sort of this image of if you have your Thanksgiving dinner and there's just so much food and it's just overflowing. And it's sort of this imagery of, of you know, you, you eat so much food, good food, that you have to loosen your belt. You're so full, you're so overflowing with food that it's this incredible blessing and, and it's this idea that this is what Jesus wants for our lives, for our souls, is for life to overflow. I have to wonder if for many of us, if perhaps the image that comes to mind when we look at our own lives is perhaps not the picture of a Thanksgiving dinner with, with all kinds of food overflowing, but, but maybe in your own life and in your own heart, what you sense in your own life is more the picture of a, a homeless person going through a garbage can. That there's an emptiness that you feel, there's an emptiness that you experience. And what, what this is about, what Jesus wants, is for you to experience life. And that's so important because so much of what you're going to hear throughout this series is going to seem like, like the very opposite of that. The things that you're going to hear are going to make it seem like, well, that does not seem like that would lead to life. That seems like that would take me exactly away from life. That everything in you, all of your instincts seem to tell you that if I go in the direction that Jesus seems to be telling me to go, that does not seem like that's going to lead to life. It seems like it's the opposite of what my instincts are telling me. And if that's what you're thinking, then that's why I want to remind you of George from Seinfeld. We talked about this last week, this episode of Seinfeld, where George is sitting there with with Elaine and Jerry at at the little restaurant where they eat, and, uh, and George is, you know, beside himself, and he's always, you know, I mean, George is always kind of beside himself, and, and he's just talking about, and this is what he says. he says, he says, every decision that I make turns out to be the wrong decision. He's like, if I, if I go left, I should have gone right, and if I go right, I should have gone left. He's like, my instincts are always wrong. And so then Jerry has this wonderful idea. He's like, well, if your instincts are always wrong, then why don't you just do the opposite of whatever your instincts are? And George, you know, there's a tremendous amount of free. He's like, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do the opposite. And, of course, the whole episode about how he does completely ridiculous things, the opposite of what anybody would think you should do, and for whatever reason, it just seems to work out. And I think it's a wonderful analogy because this is actually... Exactly what Jesus is talking about. That the Christian life is one that in many respects goes against our instincts. 
that we're all like George, that our instincts lead us to go this direction, but what really leads to life is the other direction. And I want you to see that because, again, throughout this series, it's going to seem many times like, ah, that wouldn't lead to life. But we have to remember that whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. And so this theme then emerges and will continue to emerge throughout this section of Scripture. And we find it emerging in a slightly different form at the beginning of this passage here today. And what, we, what emerges here is that life is found through surrendering, not through conquering. Through surrendering, not through conquering. You've got to understand that the disciples in Jesus' day, they expected that the kingdom of God, when they all were waiting and hoping for the kingdom of God to come, and they expected that when the kingdom would come, it would come with great force. It would come with this power in which conquering would be the sort of central theme of the kingdom of God, this sort of conquering enemies, this sort of thing. And so this is what they sort of envisioned, and they envisioned a Messiah, a king, the king who would come and would be this great fighter and warrior and would fight the Romans and fight all of their enemies and that and that sort of thing. And it's just in the chapter before this is where we discover or in the section before this is where Jesus comes out as we see he is the Messiah. So they're thinking, all right, this is going to be great. We've got this king who's going to come and we're going to start conquering people. And that comes through at least just in a small part here. And let me go back. Oh, I'm in John. Let me go back to Luke here. We notice this here in verse 52. As he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. Now, what's going on there? And we'll, I'll get into this in a minute here. But the, they're going through the Samaritan lands. And <clears throat> uh, the Samaritans were a people. There's, there's some debate about exactly uh, their historical origins and whatnot. But for our purposes, what's key to note is that they were a group of people that, in some respects, they were like the Israelites. They worshipped Yahweh, sort of. There was some syncretism going on. But centrally, the major difference was that they worshipped in a different place, Mount Gerizim, which was in their area, and the Israelites would all go to Jerusalem. And so basically, if you were going to Jerusalem, then you weren't one of them, and they didn't like you, and, and, vice, and vice versa. And so because Jesus was going towards Jerusalem, they didn't like him, and they seemed to resist, right? So they, they don't welcome him. So how do the disciples respond? They're like, oh, great, we're facing opposition, and we've got the Messiah. I know, let's call down thunder from heaven, right? That's what it says here. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? Now, I know you're thinking, okay, that's a little extreme. I mean, it's, I, I get it that you have a little bit of animosity towards these people, but call down fire from heaven? What, what is this all about? Actually, there are a couple things with regards to their circumstances which make their, their impulse not quite as crazy as you might think. There are two things we need to see going on here. First of all, they're in Samaria. They're in the, the land of Samaria, just north of Jerusalem. And they're in Samaria. That's the first thing we need to remember. Secondly, they have Elijah on the brain. Elijah is on the brain. If you go back just not that long ago, they had this 
bizarre encounter where Moses and Elijah seem to appear to them. It's this weird scene where Peter's like, do you want me to build huts for Moses and Elijah? He just doesn't know what to say because he's kind of thinks he's probably losing his mind. So they have this sort of vision of Moses and Elijah. And then after that, they, the disciple, or Jesus asks the disciples, you know, who do the crowd say that I am? And what they say, well, some of them think that you're Elijah. So Elijah just keeps kind of popping up here. Elijah's on the brain. So we've got, they're walking through Samaria, and they've got Elijah on the brain, and they're running into opposition with the Samaritans. Now, some of you may know then that Elijah himself had an interesting encounter. This is about 800 years earlier. Had this amazing encounter in Samaria dealing with a king who was opposed to the truth opposed to Yahweh, the, the king of Samaria. And let me just read to you what happens. The, this king of Samaria... Oh, I just lost my... Well, I, I'm just, just going to tell you what happens. So the king of Samaria sends a, an envoy of people to you know, basically to go after Elijah. And basically what Elijah does is he calls down fire on these 50 people and kills them. And so the disciples, I mean, you can sort of imagine, they're thinking, well, wait a minute, this is here we are in Samaria, we've got Elijah on the brain, we've got the Messiah, we'll call down fire from heaven. So it's not totally crazy. They have this Old Testament precedent that they're working with. What does Jesus do? What does Jesus say? It says, Jesus turned and rebuked You see, what Jesus is coming to announce is that there is a new way of doing things. He's announcing that he's ushering in a new era, a new way of doing things, that in some sense what you may have seen in the Old Testament is not necessarily the way it's going to be done now. Now, this, is a, this could be another whole message or another whole series, the relationship here between the New Testament and the Old Testament, I'll at least just say this. Jesus isn't discounting the Old Testament. He's not saying that that was wrong. He's not saying that Elijah was wrong for doing what he did. He's simply saying, I'm ushering in a new era, that the relationship between the New Testament and the Old Testament, it's not that the New Testament just discounts the Old Testament. I would say that the relationship is a little bit like this. If the Old Testament is a bag of flour. The New Testament is a batch of chocolate chip cookies, right? It's not like, it's not like uh, chocolate chip cookies are totally opposed to flour. If you take a bite of a chocolate chip cookie, right, I mean, unless, unless you're gluten-free, now they're making all kinds of weird gluten-free stuff, you know, it doesn't have anything in it, I don't know. But if it's, if it's normal cookies and you take a bite of a chocolate chip cookie, there's flour all the way through it. And in the same sense, every passage in the New Testament is saturated with the Old Testament. It's not that he's discounting it. He's just saying that that there's a fulfillment, that it has come to just like flour fulfills its purpose in a grand way when it turns into chocolate chip cookies. Similarly, the Old Testament has come to its fulfillment in this new way of doing things. So he's saying this is a new way that we are are doing things here. And that is that now the path to life is not through conquering, but through surrendering. Surrendering. Now, in the next section then, what we're going to discover is Jesus unpacking what it means to surrender. 
what does it mean to surrender? And so he's sort of, we're going to see this sort of unpacked in this next section. And I think I can just sum it up this way. When you look at the next uh, six verses here in this passage, here's basically what we're going to discover. Is that to surrender to Jesus means that we hold nothing back. Or put it a different way, we withhold nothing from God. There is nothing that we cling to. There is nothing that we won't give and surrender to God. Do we have any meatloaf fans here? I, I, I don't mean, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't mean the ground beef with the carrots and the breadcrumbs. You know, the, the, the 80s, 90s band, meatloaf? Come on, you know it, right? And they have that, that they, I think meatloaf is actually the guy. I think his name is meatloaf. I, I don't know. Anyway, they had that song, right? We all know the song, right? And, it's, and, and what does he say? He says, he says, I would do anything for love. I would do anything for love. I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. And there's all these debates. What is he talking about? You know, what that? Well, okay, let's not worry about what he really means by that. Um, but just on the surface, right? And this actually isn't what it means. But on the surface, it sounds like what he's saying is... <coughs> well, I'll do anything for love, I'll do anything for love, except that. I won't do that. And my question for each and every one of us is this. Perhaps you don't sing that song to your girlfriend or your spouse or your husband, but is it possible that in our hearts, in our hearts, that's what we sing to God? I would do anything for Christ. I would do anything for Christ. I would do anything for Christ. But I won't do that. No, 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 I won't do that. You see, what Jesus wants us to see is that surrendering to God means there's no that. There's nothing. There's nothing that we won't give or give up. For Princess Vespa, it's her industrial strength area. I don't know if Princess Vespa would follow Jesus, but I think that if she were, if she did say she wanted to follow Jesus, she'd say, I'd do anything for Christ, I'd do anything for Christ, I'd do anything for Christ, but I won't give up my industrial strength hairdryer. No, I won't do that. What is it for you? What's the that for you? What's your industrial strength hairdryer? In other words, what are the idols in your life? That's really what we're talking about here. We're talking about idols. An idol is something that you is more important to you than following Jesus. That's what an idol is. It's, it's, it's an idol because you're treating it like a god. It's become foundational to you. You won't, you won't give that up to follow Jesus. So my question for you is, is what, what, what is it for you? What are the idols in your life? And, of course, we see in this passage, what are the idols that the, the Israelites have? That's what Jesus then exposes. We see him sort of exposing some idols in the lives of the Israelites, and you're going to be somewhat surprised by the kinds of things that he exposes here. I think the first thing that is exposed in the section that we just looked at, actually, is he's exposing their prejudice. They have racial and and religious prejudice towards the Samaritans. Again, the, the Samaritans and the Israelites, they were at odds with one another. And we see that the Samaritans didn't welcome them. 
the, the disciples wanted to call down fire upon them. But Jesus is challenging that. You see, Jesus goes through Samaria. You see, what's kind of interesting is that Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria to get to Jerusalem. In fact, most Israelites didn't. Most of them went around Samaria. They wouldn't go through Samaria. They don't want to go through that group of people that are other and different than them, believe different things than them, probably look different, act a little bit different. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. If you're going to follow me, you've got to give up that prejudice. My question for you is, is do we still have that problem in our country today? Are we still struggling with that? Do we find ourselves at times even recognizing our own prejudices towards those who are different than us? I think we can say without any doubt that one of the most, the greatest tragedies of our country is our history of racism. That perhaps the the starkest, blackest mark on us calling ourselves a Christian nation is our history of racism. Jesus says you have to give that up. You have to give that up. You have to give up that so much of the New Testament is about bringing down the walls of separation of ethnicity and race, all of that. It's, it's, he's saying, you, you, if you're going to follow me, you see, you because see, to many of the Israelites, to many in Jesus' day, they say, Jesus, I'll follow you. I would do anything for Christ. I would do anything for Christ. I'd do anything for Christ. But wait, try to build relations with the Samaritans? No, no, I won't do that. How many of us, we look at our own lives, our own attitudes towards those who are different. And, uh, I'll follow you, Jesus. I'll follow you, Jesus. But don't, you know, don't call me to live in an area with these people. I won't do that. So he identifies the idolatry of prejudice. Then moving on into verse 58, he identifies another one. This is another one that will kind of stand out here. As they were following along, being in verse 57, as they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. (laughs) He's saying, you want to follow me, uh, don't think about sleeping in your bed at night. Now, of course, this is, you know, we've got to look at the occasion here. He's literally going to Jerusalem. He's on his way, right? So there's, there's an immediacy here where it's very literal. Like, literally, if you're going to follow me, we're not coming back here to Galilee anytime soon. I'm going there to die. So, you, you know, I hope you're okay with this. So there's, there's a literal sense here, but I think we can draw out of this. What he's saying is, if, if you're going to follow me, you can't be attached to, to even your home. And your lifestyle, the, the things, the, the comfortability, the comfortability of your life right now, the things that you have settled into. He's saying, if you're going to follow me, you have to be willing to consider giving that up. But how many of us would be like, Jesus, I'll do anything for you, I'll do anything for you, I'll do anything for you, but as long as I can stay in my house, I love my house. Just don't, just don't make me ever have to move out of my house. 
Oh, Jesus, I'll follow you. I'll go wherever you want to go. I'll do whatever you want to do. But, but, but if I do have to move, at least make sure that I get a house that's a lot like the one that I have right now. Oh, Jesus, I'll do anything for you. I'll do anything for you. I'll do anything for you. But I don't want to give up my dream. I've been dreaming about this. Oh, my God, I've got the blueprints for it. Uh, and I, I just can't. We're just, this is the house that I want. And Jesus, Jesus isn't necessarily telling you you can't have that, but he's saying you've got to be willing to. You've got to be willing to. I mean, maybe that'll work out. That's great. God wants to bless us with all kinds of things. But it's not something that you hold on to so tightly that, that, you, that it hinders you from following Jesus wherever he may wish to lead us. So he identifies the idolatry of, of their home, of their land. I mean, actually, even for the Israelites, it's even stronger than this. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he's, he's really telling them, you've got to stop worrying about your home and your land if you're going to follow me. Of course, for the Israelites, their land was absolutely central to their identity. Jesus is saying, your identity can't be in the land. Your identity is in me. I am your identity wherever I go. So he calls out this idol of land, of home, then, then this, this one's going to get, I mean, this one just kind of, you don't even know what to do with these <clears throat> next four verses. He said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. You know, what's funny is, I, I, so we, we sang a song here that I wrote for this series. And at one point, I, I was trying to work that line in there, you know, let the dead bury their dead. And there's no way to sing it without cracking up. Like, Laura and I, we kind of joke around, like we would sing it and we let the dead bury their And you're like, there's no way anybody can sing this. It's so crazy. It's crazy to let the dead bury their own dead. And you got to understand, in, in in Jesus' day, for an Israelite, one of the most sacred responsibilities of a son was to give his father a proper burial. One of the most sacred duties of an Israelite in Jesus' day was to give his father a proper burial. And, and then, then this, this next guy, still another, I will follow you, Lord, but... But first, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. What? I can't even say goodbye to my family? Now, we've got to realize here, this is no doubt a classic case of rabbinic hyperbole. This is what... This is how rabbis taught. Jesus does this all. I mean, and later on, in the same kind of context, he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, just even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, is Jesus really saying you should hate your family? No. What he's saying is that our love for him has got to be so much greater than anything. To the Israelites, there was nothing more important than family. 
I mean, think about how the whole story got started with Father Abraham. So much of the story of Abraham is about, about is he going to be able to have a family? Is Sarah going to be able to give birth? Is, is that going to happen? And, and so much of the narrative, because in that culture, like there, being able to pass on your line was to not be able to do that was, was shameful in that culture. The idea of family was so central, it just kind of works its way through the Old Testament narrative. It's what their, their people were all even almost founded on this idea of the importance of family. And now Jesus is saying, yeah, 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 you don't even say goodbye to your family. If you're going to follow me, I've got to be more important than even your family. Now, once again, we don't want to misunderstand what's going on here because there are all kinds of places in the Bible where it talks about the importance of family. Ephesians chapter 5 it tells husbands, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. It goes on, talks about husbands, do not exasperate your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. That Children are like arrows in a man's quiver. So there's this incredible value of family in the Bible, and, and the New Testament doesn't discount that. In fact, drives it home, I think, just as, as much in many respects. But what, So what is Jesus? We don't want to misunderstand him. What, what is he really getting at, probably in the immediate context of this? What, what he's getting at is that for many of the, well, for the people whom he was calling to follow, following him would probably mean being ostracized by their family. Jesus knows that at the end of this story that the, the religious leaders of his day are going to be calling out for him to be killed. And so anybody who follows him, you know, this is not going to be good with your family. It's, it's, it's probably going to cause a wedge between you and your family, not because you're trying to cause it, but because if you follow me, you're probably going to be disowned. I think of a friend of mine, Today, this is not, I think, for most Americans, it's not quite that extreme. For one of my friends, it was. He became a Christian. His father hasn't spoken to him in 20 years, hasn't even met his children. Once he became a Christian, his father wrote him off entirely, wouldn't meet with him, wouldn't be with him. I don't know if any of us face anything quite that severe, but there's no doubt, I think, that in our society, even in our society, there can be that pressure coming from our family and from our culture. So you follow Jesus. I think even within the Christian community, you know, I mean, I think there are lots of people, there's sort of the famous phrase, you know, some, some parents, they raise their kids and they, they raise them to be respectable Christians and then they freak out when they become real Christians. Yeah, I want, to, I want to raise my kid. I want to raise my kid in the church. I think it's good for him to get a little church. It's good. It's good for him. You can't keep balanced, you know, give him a little bit of church. And then, then their kid starts actually following Jesus. Like, what is this? But how many of us, do we want our kids to be respectable Christians or do we want them to be real ones? I think even within the Christian community, there can be a sense in which following Jesus itself 
might lead to, to an element of social ostracization. Jesus is saying, following me means complete surrender. There's nothing that you would withhold. So my question for you this morning is, what is it for you? What are the things in your life? What are the idols? What are the things where you're saying, I'll do anything for Christ, I'd do anything for Christ, I'd do anything for Christ, but I won't do that. No, 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 I won't do that. What is it for you? Maybe it's your career for some of you. But Jesus, I'll I'll follow you. I'll do whatever you want me to do as long as it doesn't mess with the trajectory of my career. Right? Anything, as long as it, you know, as long as it doesn't mess with the plans that I have made out. Now, again, I'm not telling Jesus isn't against your career necessarily. He may want you to go that direct path, but are you sure that it's Jesus that's leading you down that path and not you just wanting that for your own sake? If I'm, it might be your career. For some of us, it might be a relationship that we're in. It's a relationship where we know, you know, this probably isn't really what Jesus, this isn't really the relationship that Jesus would want me to be in. But our sort of attitude is, well, Jesus, I'll do anything for Christ. I'll do anything for Christ. I'll do anything for Christ. But my relationships are kind of up to me. That's, that's sort of, that's my area. I won't, I won't do that. I won't give that into Jesus' hands. This is where I will do what I want to do in this area of my life. I heard of a, a, youth, a youth pastor who was serving in the church, serving in the church, serving in the church. And then on the side, in a completely, a completely not healthy sexual relationship, like, well, no, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm serving Jesus, I'm serving him, I'm serving God, I'll do this, I'll do this, I'll do this. Oh, no, but not that. What? No, no, no. I won't do that, I won't give that up. There are how many of us? There's something in our lives. Small, small scale, big scale. What are those things in your life where you, you're not so sure you would give that up in order to follow Jesus? Well, this is what the season of Lent is all about. It's an opportunity for us to identify those things in our lives that maybe we're clinging to because we feel like if I give that up, that's not going to lead to life. We're clinging to that because we believe that's where life is actually found. And what the season is about is it's a focused time when we say, God, you are the only thing that I so I surrender all of this to you. So I would just encourage you during this season, this is why we encourage things like fasting. We don't just, you know, we don't just try to say everybody fast from this. We're not trying to get into legalism here. What, what legalism actually does when you start telling people you need to give up this, you need to give up this, is it actually waters down the gospel. It waters it down because then it makes surrendering manageable, like really manageable. Oh, I can do that. If I give that up, I can give that up, I can give that up, and now I'm good to go. You realize, when we realize the totality of what Jesus is calling us to, there's no way I could start saying everybody needs to give this up, this up, this up, this up. There'd be nothing left. So that's why we put it, it's on you. It's in your own heart. What, what, What might Jesus be leading you to surrender to him 
in this season. And I would encourage you during Lent, this is, this is where, you know, fasting, sometimes we'll fast from food, we'll fast from television, and sometimes those are things that we don't want to give up, but they can also be more symbolic of even bigger issues. And surrendering those things can remind us of what are the bigger issues that really are hindering us from wanting to, from really following Jesus. So I encourage you during this season of Lent to walk with Jesus to Jerusalem. And, and listen, this surrendering, this is what communion The communion becomes a symbolic way in which we look at the reality of the gospel, which is that Jesus gave his life for us. He surrendered his life for us and is inviting us to surrender to him as well. And that when we take communion, what we're doing is we're acknowledging the truth of the gospel. We're acknowledging that life is found in following Jesus who gave his life for us. And in taking the elements, we are saying not only acknowledging that Jesus died for me, but we are also saying, and so I also will die to myself for him. That's why communion communion is, is for believers. If you're here today and you're not a believer, we're so glad that you're here. We're so glad that you're here. We hope that you will feel welcome. But certainly we don't want you to feel pressured into participating In communion, this is an act in which we are saying, Jesus, I surrender to you. And so what we're going to do this week, and we're going to take communion every week in the season of Lent as a way of driving home the importance of surrender. What we're going to do is we're going to have you come forward. So at at this point, if the ushers, if you guys want to go ahead and come forward, I'm just going to kind of walk. This is, we're not used to doing it this way, so I'm going to explain this as carefully as I can. Guys, go ahead and come on forward. You can come on up here to the table here. You can figure out who the four of you are. There we go. Excellent. And so what's going to happen is uh, I'm going to pray. They're going to come up here. I'm going to pray, and then what they're going to do is they're going to take the bread and the cup. There's going to be two on each side, guys. Right? So two of you on each side. One of you is going to hold uh, the, the cup. One's going to hold the bread. You guys got this. You guys can do this. And have two of you standing by the piano and get as close to the piano as you can. And then two of you over here on this side. And then what you're going to do, folks, is you're going to come up the outside. You're going, to, you're going to go the outside. You're going to come, and then you're going to take the bread and the cup and go ahead and take it right there. Go ahead and t- take your time. We're not trying to rush it. Go ahead and take it right there. And then when you're finished, you can walk back, take your cup with you back, and then you can still put the cup in the little holder when you come back. So you're going to come up. You're going to take the bread and the cup. And I want you to, again, you don't need to rush. You don't need to rush. You can also, I want to encourage you, potentially if, to, to stop before the cross for a moment and, and maybe even kneel. If you want to kneel, we have space here um, on the steps where you can even just kneel and take your time uh, there as an act of surrender. That's, that's what this is all about. That as we walk towards, we are walking with Jesus to the cross because we believe that this is what leads to life. Will you pray with me? Ben, you can come. Dear God, we praise you for the hope and the life that we have in you. God, I pray that that this would be a season in which our faith is put into action. 
that we just surrender ourselves completely to you, that our faith becomes more than just belief, that it becomes a genuine trust, where we surrender those things that we cling to too tightly, and we hold and cling to you alone. Lord, that those things that have become idols in our lives, not necessarily that we disregard them entirely, but that we submit them to you, that they become gifts from you for us to enjoy, but not to be submitted to ourselves, God, that we might surrender ourselves entirely to you as the one who has demonstrated through his death and resurrection that you are the path to life. We pray this in Jesus' name.